I feel like when you enter a neighborhood, you do whatever the opposite of gentrification is. <laughs> like, you don't quite do heroin in public, but also, like, you're not you're not boosting property prices. The price on that one bedroom across the street was 350000 but then they knocked fifty grand off when they found out there's a weirdo who bathes in the public fountains. <laughs> C'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory. I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict of crack cocaine. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Fat, French, and Fabulous, or you're new... Welcome to Fat, French, and Fabulous. I always feel a bit weird about the back. That's true. It is a presumption that you've been here before. Yeah. But, uh, Maybe you're new. Some of you- Many of you are new. Many, many of you are, of you new. are new. We're appreciative. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you've, you're here. You're trapped now, fuckers. Uh, get out while you can. <laughs> Your friends and family tricked you, and now your soul is ours. It's like eating <laughs> pomegranate seeds in hell. It's just- we get you for at least six months of the year. Every every second you spend listening to our voices is another another shred of your soul down to the pit. <laughs> that anchor just gets heavier and heavier, and it will drag you under. Uh, in any case, uh, I'm Jessica. I'm Janelle, and I can't believe they let us do our own self promotion. I mean, they is us. There's absolutely yeah. no other people who work on this podcast as of as of the present, but. Yeah, we we probably shouldn't allow ourselves to do our own self-promotion. That was awful. We're our own HR, and it's not going well. Wow. Uh, Yeah. You're in an abusive relationship with a podcast, is essentially the marketing strategy. I've been sexually harassing myself, and me has not taken it seriously. Are you gonna me to yourself? (laughs) I, I can't even articulate. The entire notion. I put, put myself in the bathroom and I made myself strip. <laughs> then I had a bubble bath for I... my own sick enjoyment. <laughs> you need an adult or less adults. I don't know. I don't know how many adults it will take to fix this. Fix this situation. It's either more or less than we currently have. I don't. I don't even know. I don't know anymore. What I. What I. Oh. Oh, this is going to be a rough hour. What I do know is that this week we are getting back to the bread and butter of Janelle episodes. We're doing a mysterious disappearance. Oh, disappearance. Well, whatever. No, I mean, you're like, well, whatever. Talk to me when there's a murder. She's probably dead. I want to see... I want to see blood. Yeah, we've been doing a lot of historical uh, episodes lately. Because we're fusing. Yeah, so now we're now we're going back to people who just vanished into the ether. That's yeah, we're 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 heading towards a true crime history sort of singularity. It's hard to even explain what the theme of this podcast is. I just kind of know it when I see it. Yeah, just it's sort of like it's a more of a gut feel than a real process. You just you hear something just tr- <laughs> that truly shocks and horrifies you, and you go that that it's. There's an it factor to this podcast, and it's all of it's awful. Mm. Um, so this week, specifically, we are doing the disappearance of Dorothy Arnold. And we don't know, like I mentioned, this is an unsolved case, so we don't know what happened to the subject of this week's episode after she vanished. But I do actually know where she is now. Yeah. Um, and that is because she's she's dead. She's 100%. I mean, I don't know... <laughs> you don't know where? Geographically where she is. 
I know she's dead now. You can't geocache her corpse? No, if she was still alive today, she would be 134 years old. Mm, and uh, humans humans can survive some pretty incredible situations, but turning 134 is not yet one of them. Yeah, that's... Uh, time will get you in the end. <laughs> yeah, so if you did all the fancy math... Um, Either you're good at math or you uh, have a lot of fingers to count on. I don't know. I don't know your life. Maybe we, we're... F- We've got a lot of millipede listeners. I was going to say, we've broken into the mili- the elusive millipede demographic. Dorothy Arnold was a young socialite who disappeared from New York City around the turn of the century. And this story is actually very similar to one that we covered before. Episode 31 was the, dis- the disappearance of Barbara Newhall Follett which was also an episode about a young female writer from New York City who disappeared under unusual circumstances in her mid-twenties. Similarly, Janelle, a writer in her twenties living in New York. I intend to disappear any day now. That's when you can tell we've really made it. Oh yeah, that's my Columbia repayment plan. Just go missing. Disappear into the night. (laughs) All I I want to do is just uh, up and vanish. Enjoy these episodes while you can. I'm gonna... Next time you see me, it will be... <laughs> I'm going to be the subject of a Dateline episode. It's it's going to be great. Yeah, I can't wait to be interviewed. It's going to be my big break. <laughs> I, I'll, I'm glad that my tragic disappearance in my mid-twenties will be good for you, career-wise. That's exactly what I want. It'll be super ironic in a way that's going to get me a lot of journalistic attention, and I appreciate your sacrifice. When I'm being snuffed out in my prime, the last thought I have on this mortal plane will be, man, I hope this is good for getting Jessica a Netflix special. (laughs) (laughs) You're a friend. (laughs) A true friend. But as similar as Barbara Newhall Follett and Dorothy Arnold are on the surface, they're they're very much opposite people. Barbara Newhall Follett was an immensely successful writer who led a deeply troubled personal life and experienced poverty for much of her life. By contrast, as we mentioned, Dorothy Arnold was, uh, she grew up in the lap of luxury as a wealthy heiress and socialite, and she was a failed writer, which may or may not have contributed to her disappearance. You remember, kids, the more miserable you are, the better the art. <laughs> Start self-castigating no. today. Let the shame come through <laughs> your pen! <laughs> I thought you were going to say self-castrating. I was like, we're going to have to get insurance if you're going to start advising people to castrate themselves on air. <laughs> we don't we don't have a lawyer I yet. I mean, that might work. Yeah, we're going to we're going to have to start a GoFundMe for our legal fees if you start doing that. Become the best painter you can be. Chop your nuts off. <laughs> Please don't. That's what they did with Castrati. That's not that's There's one. a more direct they relation didn't make there. The Castrati paint. <laughs> I don't know. Right, it son, made them better have... singers. Maybe it helps in all kind of ways. You have no balls and you sing like a songbird. Pick up this goddamn paintbrush. That's mm. not at all. That's not what that I is. I bet you're an excellent um, sculptor. Jesus. The fruits of creativity are in the testes. You must crush them to open them. They're like pistachios. No. No. Do not crush the fucking prickly hazelnuts of creativity. (laughs) That's not what those are. If you love your art, you'll do what it takes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. I I didn't have any plans for next month, but I guess it's fight a lawsuit? (laughs) That's that's all my free time taken care of. Excellent. A lot of podcasters, you know, like, when they when they start getting up getting a little bit of traction, they they hire an editor, they hire a sound guy. We're gonna have to hire a lawyer. Yeah, because apparently the theme of this podcast is murder history and also put your nuts in a waffle iron. Hey, self mutilation has come up before. 
This is not new. <laughs> this is not good. I've been fixated on the Dorothy Arnold case for a while. I actually wrote about it on crack.com. Not to talk myself up too, too, too much. But if you are familiar with this case, there is a good chance that it's already because of me. <laughs> if this sounds vaguely familiar, like something you read on an internet listicle a couple of years ago, you did and you're welcome. The best summary of the case, though, and the reason that I'm so fixated with it, comes from a newspaper article that was published, um, it's a contemporary article, it was published shortly after the disappearance actually happened, and it reads, She disappeared from one of the busiest streets on Earth at the sunniest hour of a brilliant afternoon, with thousands within sight and reach, men and women who knew her on every side, and officers of the law thickly strewn about her path. Agatha Christie me, baby. It is some Agatha Christie shit. Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold, which is the richest, whitest name I've heard all week, and I live in New York City. She was born in New York City on July 1st, 1885. It's, uh, it's Canada Day. I bet she celebrated it with the pride of her not country. Also, Canada was, like, in its teenage years at the time, so, you know. Canada as a concept was still wearing Hot Topic and crying in its room and bleeding all its eyeliners <laughs> into its pillows. Yes, the nation of Canada was listening to Simple Plan and thinking about how nobody loves it and no one will go to the dance with it. <laughs> Good, today we're a wizened 152. Uh, technically, um, we're dead. <laughs> Good to know. Canada is dead. You heard it here first. <laughs> so at the time, New York City was actually just Manhattan. This has nothing to do with the case. I just think it's interesting. The outer boroughs did not become part of the city until 1898. Queens and Brooklyn were just chilling, not being shittier parts of New York City. They were just being their own separate kind of shitty things. I feel like you need to have a minimal understanding of New York City to understand that, like, Queens is considered less favorable than Manhattan. We're like, it's named after the Queen, it must be excellent. I, I don't really have an intuitive grasp of, like, the reputations of other places around Vancouver. Like, everyone used to keep talking about Surrey kind of, like, knowingly, and I was like, I don't know what that means at all. And then, I, and then I went to Surrey, and, like, I was off of the train for seven minutes, and I saw three men openly doing heroin in a parking lot. <laughs> I figured out the mystery. <laughs> I was walking through a parking lot in Flushing, Queens the other day, and I heard just, out of nowhere, a man scream into another man's face, hit me, motherfucker, and I was like, well, that's the most Queens parking lot thing I'll ever experience. <laughs> My work here is done. Back on the train. And as long as we're listing off useless historical facts, the borough of Queens is named after Queen Catherine of Braganza, a queen that none of you are familiar with. Not even me. Unless you specifically have a strong grasp of Portuguese royalty. It's not named after a British queen, although she was queen consort of England, Scotland, and Ireland. Hmm. This is this is a, a Portuguese queen. Weird. I don't know why we named a borough after her and didn't bother to put her name on there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you're gonna name it after a specific queen, go all the way. Never mind just, like, queens. Some of them. <laughs> Freddy, question mark? Let's name a borough after Miss Janelle Como. We'll call it Miss. <laughs> so Dorothy was the second of four children born to American perfume importer Francis Rose Arnold and his wife Mary Martha Park Samuels from Montreal, Quebec. We always get that Canadian content in there somewhere. If you're ever wondering if someone historical in one of our podcasts is Canadian, we'll tell you. Oh, we get that you're in there. No, we still haven't like given up hope on getting like Canadian arts grants, so we've got to just slip it in there as best we can. By the way, the reason we don't have Canadian arts grants: 
because comedy isn't an art, according to Canadian Art Grants. <laughs> no, I was going to say, because no part of what we do is art. <laughs> uh, after last week's episode went up, you've just started harassing me with the phrase, oh, what is it? Ostrich poon friction burn. <laughs> so, yeah, no, nothing I say on this podcast is even defensible, let alone art. I'm pretty sure I've been <laughs> harassing you with windmilling his dick, actually. You have also been harassing me with windmilling his dick. I'm just thankful you don't have the equipment to go all the way. You don't know. They're getting very good with prostheses these days. <laughs> You're going to get arrested? <laughs> but also, I can, I can just... The, the faster you windmill your dick in the greater Vancouver area, like, it's almost like a crank that just winds down property prices. <laughs> Wherever you are, you're just bringing the property tax down. I'm, just land value. I'm doing my <laughs> part to help affordability. You're reeling in affordable houses like your fake penis is a fishing reel. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how that's going. What a, what an image. You'd have to grip really tightly. Or make sure it was quite secure. <laughs> Otherwise. <laughs> oh no. It would just fly off. Oh, so speaking of Jessica's unsecured rubber penis flying through the air, the the Arnolds were a family of high social standing and great social clout, so they almost definitely didn't helicopter rubber penises in Union Square. That almost definitely didn't happen. Uh, her father, Francis Arnold, was a Harvard graduate and the senior partner of a company called F.R. Arnold & Co., which imported, quote, fancy goods. So mostly perfume, but also some other luxury high-end items. The Arnold family could trace itself back to passengers from the original Mayflower, which is a big deal in the United States. It's a boat. Uh, their hatred of immigrants does not extend to the white ones that came over before a certain time period. Everyone after that can fuck right off. The family itself was listed in the social register, which was and continues to be a big deal. Uh, if you are the type of person who is in danger of being guillotined in a socialist revolution. Uh, the rest of us don't know what that is. The social register is a big book full of rich 19th generation Ivy League graduates who live on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And they inherited all their money from great 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 grandpappy who brought it over in trunks on the Mayflower. That's basically what that means. It's it's continues to exist. This is a list that's still regularly updated. It's just a big list of fancy high status people. Yes. They don't matter except for the fact that they do for arbitrary historical reasons. And they go to parties that are much fancier than you and they know which fork is the dessert fork. That's That's their whole thing. They can tell a properly made traditional gelatin at 300 paces. You call that Russian caviar? I don't buy it. I've got a nose like a like, like a blue bloodhound. They can look at you from a thousand yards and tell that you're wearing an off-the-rack J.C. Penny suit that you had modified at a Chinese laundry. They've also never seen a laundromat in person. <laughs> it's entirely possible they just throw out their clothes after wearing them once. But yeah, so this is basically the list that we will use to guillotine the wealthy in the coming socialist uprising. I'm looking forward to it. That's... We, I need to get out <laughs> Right? Uh, Dorothy was added to it at birth, so that's a big deal. That shows that you're coming from a, a family of very high status. Dorothy grew up at 108 uh, East 79th Street on the Upper East Side. This is um, 
for we have we have many Australian and New Zealand listeners now, which is delightful. So for those of you who are not familiar with New York City real estate, the Upper East Side is one of the most expensive neighborhoods on the planet. Uh, I personally like to go there to listen to Upper East Side New York housewives argue about their problems at Starbucks. <laughs> None of them have any real problems. I can't decide if I want to fling them or myself into the East River. At a certain point, you just start inventing problems just so you'll have something to talk about at brunch. Listen, I sat there for two hours listening to three ladies in yoga pants argue about whether or not it was worth it to move to a higher floor of their building because it would come with an $8,000 per month increase in rent. (laughs) 8,000 is most of my rent for a year. (laughs) Not even. No, it's more than half a year, though. Holy shit. For the rest of us, that is untold riches. For them, that is a slight surplus on a better view. I live in a fourth-floor walk-up in a renovated crack house 20 blocks from there. And my building's worth buttons and lint. (laughs) The house that Dorothy grew up in still exists. It's still there. Uh, It's a 5,400, holy shit, 54,000 is an airplane carrier. Uh, 5,400 square foot single-family home, which is quite unusual in New York. Aren't single-family homes illegal? (laughs) In New York, they just come, if you've got a brownstone, they just beat down your door and force you to rent out your spare bedroom. We're coming for you. We're getting there. (laughs) If, If you have more, if you have more than, like, one bedroom for every three people, I mean... You can get your fingers broken. <laughs> if you have a guest room, we will throw you down an elevator shaft. You better be fucking stacking people. We're not fucking around. <laughs> Did you know that if the entire world lived at the population density of Manhattan, we the entire world's population would fit in Texas? That's a fun fact I learned this week. Fun. It made me sad. That's a very it odd... It made me deeply sad. But that is a very excellent <laughs> non-standard unit of measurement. The population density of Manhattan versus the population of the world? Oh no, just one Texas. One Texas. It's a unit now. Every time you say a good joke in this podcast, I will award you one Texas. If you have a good episode, you'll own part of Saturn by the time we're done. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I won't be able to I won't be able to invest or mortgage that that investment at all, but I'll know. I'll know. No. No, and it won't buy you a house like Dorothy's. The house that she grew up in actually recently sold. Uh, for $4.2 million, it has a current estimated rental value of $27,000 a month. So sharpen those guillotines. Dorothy attended the Velton School for Girls, which was a fancy prep school on the Upper East Side. It only existed from 1886 to 1924, but it was basically a factory that pumped out admissions to fancy private women's colleges. Pretty much every girl to come out of there either went to Barnard, Vassar, Wellesley, or Bryn Mawr. Again, these are names that will mean nothing to our non-American audience, but these are basically the female Ivy League, back before the Ivy League admitted women. Two of them are actually formally affiliated with Ivy League schools, and sure enough, Dorothy went to one of them. She attended Bryn Mawr in Pennsylvania. Harvard, but painted unnecessary Barbie pink. It is. It's it's like those Bic pens that are inexplicably pink. That's that's Barnard's college. I know a rude rhyme about I shouldn't about have picked Barnard. that one. I have... Do you? What is the rude rhyme about Barnard? You taught it to me. Oh. Oh, never mind. We're not repeating <laughs> that on this podcast. <laughs> That's, I have way too many friends that go to Barnard. Barnard is the female college affiliated with Columbia University because Columbia was the last Ivy to admit women. Whee! Today they like to jerk themselves off to how woke they are, but mm-hmm. yeah, if you 
1983, you better have a goddamn penis. Or else. Or you can't come. It turns out, though, that even though Dorothy had your standard-issue, ultra-privileged heiress upbringing, there really are some things that money can't buy. So after graduating from college in 1905, Dorothy moved back in with her parents at 108 East 79th Street, and she declared that she wished to become a writer. Her family and friends, however, were largely unsupportive of her ambitions, and they didn't take her writing seriously at all. Which is not great. If even your family and friends are supposed to be the ones who tell you to go for it. So the fact that even they're like, mm. Probably not. Like, if the reaction of everyone who knows you and loves you is like, yeah, sure, whatever. Like, you're probably borderline illiterate. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I mean, if you want to audition on Broadway and your, your family don't even support you, there's a good chance you just sound like a dying eagle. So her, her loved ones found her dream of being a writer to be quite amusing, and they often made jokes about it at her expense. She was incredibly serious about this, but they tended to view it as a silly little hobby of hers rather than a serious career option for Dorothy. And she ran into problems with this. So in 1910, she submitted a short story to McClure's Magazine, which was a popular illustrated monthly magazine that ran from 1893 to 1929. Many important famous writers like Jack London, Mark Twain, Robert Louis Stevenson, Arthur Conan Doyle, and Rudyard Kipling are among contributors to McClure's. So it's a big deal. People used to read on paper back in the day. I know all of those names. Uh, Dorothy's story, however, was rejected, which is why you recognize the name Robert Louis Stevenson. You probably don't recognize the name Dorothy Arnold. Being rejected was quite humiliating for her, as her friends and family teased her about the rejection quite a bit. <laughs> it's just a dick move. <laughs> That is actually kind of harsh. <laughs> it is kind of harsh. So in response, she actually went out and rented a P.O. box of her own so that none of her family could see any of her correspondence from publishers and magazines. Honestly, fair. <laughs> fair. She didn't want to re get rejections sent to the house anymore. Yeah, I don't want to get bullied because you fuckers want to look at my mail. Fuck you. God, can you, can you, if, I, if my family shit on me every time I got a short story rejected. I think I would have drowned myself in the bathtub yeah. several years ago. I'd be a shell of a human being. If, like, every time you got rejected <laughs> creatively just everyone decided to take the piss, yeah, it would be okay. <laughs> and you are in such robust psychological health now. Mm. <laughs> this is what I'm like with a supportive family life! <laughs> <laughs> There's not much higher to climb, but there is so much further down you could go. <laughs> it's like bobsledding. You've almost hit ceiling, but that floor is down there. <laughs> <laughs> so in October of 1910, Dorothy asked her father if she could move out of the family home and into an apartment in Greenwich Village so that she could focus on her writing. Her father, however, forbade her to move out, and he told her that, quote, a good writer can write anywhere. So just twist the knife, papa. <laughs> I'm just going to imply that you're garbage. <laughs> <laughs> no, my garbage daughter, if you were good at this, you'd already be successful. Dorothy's father wasn't just trying to shit on her writing dream, although he was doing that very effectively. 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10 for parental shitting. He had technique. <laughs> Dorothy's father, however, was concerned that Dorothy, Dorothy was less interested in having a writer's den and more interested in having a little love nest. Mm. Dorothy had previously gone on a trip to Boston alone with a boyfriend whom her parents disapproved oh, of. I'm clutching my pearls. Yeah, this is unthinkable behavior for a never-married, high-status young woman in the 1910s. 
this is like finding out Queen Elizabeth danced on a bar table with nipple tassels on. Like, this is just something that is <laughs> not done among people of her social standing. I mean, you don't know. Liz might have had a wild, misspent youth. <laughs> you think there's just a box out there somewhere that contains the royal pasties? <laughs> I wonder if they're monogrammed. <laughs> Just little crowns hanging off the nipples. Elizabeth Windsor. <laughs> they, but they both say Regina on the inside. <laughs> They've got jewels on them that are worth more than my home. Yeah, you know. They're all that kind stolen of stuff. from India, you know. Classy. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, now it's uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> they stole them, Janelle. They're nice, but they were stolen. <laughs> I don't think there's any lawyer fancy enough to defend us against a lawsuit from Her Majesty suing us for defamation because we imply that she likes to dance with stolen Indian nipple tassels in her spare time. I personally consider it a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going to make it better when you explain that you're just deeply attracted to Queen Elizabeth and this is more (laughs) of a... This is more wish fulfillment than anything else. Really? This is a mutually assured destruction. If Elizabeth Windsor wants to sue me, I will declare my deep, unabiding lust for her on national television. I will declare to the international community that I am down. (laughs) You are the reason I Google to see if child leashes come in adult sizes. (laughs) So in November 1910, Dorothy submitted a second short story titled The Poinsettia and the Flame to McClure's and was again rejected. I actually have not been able to find a copy of this story anywhere. The the title is well reported in sources about Dorothy Arnold. If anybody can find us a copy of this short story, I'd be very curious to read it. I will Um, send you my blood. I don't... What? I mean, I'll I'll do that anyway. I mean, I'd prefer it if you gave us this cool short story... But, like, I'm just down to send you my blood. I I requested a unpublished short story from 1910. You offer me medical waste. You know, <laughs> those are equivalent. I mean, especially if you're Elizabeth Windsor, I, I'm, I'm, you can have as much of my blood as you want. I, I, I can't even tell if that's literary criticism at that point. I mean, I, I have two published short stories. Um, one's available in an anthology on Amazon. One's just available for free on the internet because... I don't, I'm not good enough to earn money from my work, but um, if I sent a short story to a magazine and they just ha- mailed me back a bag of human blood, I think I'd just take up the tambourine <laughs> for artistic expression. I think I'd just give up. To, to quote Dorothy Arnold's father, you should be able to write anywhere, even covered in blood. Especially covered in blood. It'll make you a better artist. You know, you gotta, you gotta live. <laughs> Right from experience. The experience of being covered in blood. Covered in blood from your severed nutsack. (laughs) I'm gonna make them artists, Janelle. I'm gonna keep them from this path. This is why we won't let you get an MFA. But Dorothy apparently took this second rejection incredibly hard, and she was feeling very dejected and humiliated by the whole affair. She continued sort of working on her writing career for the remainder of her known life, but she never got anywhere. Again, though, as someone who has published short stories, you need to go through way more than two rejections before you give up. Yeah. Dorothy kind of gave up a little early. I, I mean, I can't... I, I've never read her writing. I've never been able to find any kind of copies. I'm not even sure that copies of her unpublished writing survived. But um, I think my first short story was rejected 22 times before it got accepted. Being a writer just means being dead inside and not caring how often you get rejected. 
You've just gotta let it slide off your back like whatever slides off of a duck. I haven't tested. It's water. It's not blood. Do not cover ducks in your blood. (laughs) The World Wildlife Federation will have words with you. Rejection just slides off a duck's back. Ducks notably good at taking a, you know, taking criticism. I thought you were going to say taking a punch. I was like, no, don't punch a duck. They're very fragile. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's just going to get you banned from the petting zoo. Pretenderized. Oh, no. You're a vegetarian. <laughs> You're like, I don't want to eat the duck. I just want to tenderize it for other people. Dear God. But if you are if you are a writer and you're discouraged, you've got to send out your short stories the way that, like, dudes swipe right on tw- on Tinder. That's... It's a numbers game. You kind of got to have that confidence. You got you to gotta put yourself out there. This is now a writing advice podcast slash murder slash disappearances slash history. We're expanding all the time. Slash... <laughs> DIY testicle surgery? That's still up for debate. So the days leading up to Dorothy's disappearance were incredibly normal, and there was no sign that anything out of the ordinary was about to take place. On December 9th of 1910, she spent the day helping her younger sister Marjorie um, address invitations for her debutante ball. Um, For those of you who aren't wealthy 20th century aristocrats, a debutante party or a debutante ball is a party where a young woman is revealed to high society for the first time. After your debutante ball, this is the time when you are officially considered fair game to be courted or proposed to by eligible bachelors in your social scene. Yes. They're like cattle auctions, but with more lace. Uh, the day after this, she allegedly visited the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And the day before she disappeared, she just sort of hung around at home. She was not acting strangely. She was not doing anything out of the ordinary. Nobody noticed that anything was possibly wrong. Yeah, because she's just going around doing, like, rich person things. She's just doing rich shit. That's, like, the richest activity I've ever heard of. It's the richest on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. It's the richest, whitest shit yeah. available. While being named Dorothy Camille Arnold. If you got any whiter, you'd be translucent. You'd be able to see inside you like a glass fish. Just <laughs> I was gonna watch say, your organs. Oh, these people just smell of old champagne and fusty cheese. So on the morning of December 12th, 1910, 25-year-old Dorothy Arnold told her mother that she was going out to buy a dress for her younger sister's upcoming debutante party. Dorothy's mother, Mary, offered to accompany Dorothy on the dress shopping trip, but Dorothy said that she would go by herself and she would call home if she found a suitable dress. Uh, I'm gonna... I'm going to rip on true crime forums quite a bit throughout this podcast because there's quite a lot of discussion on this case on true crime forums. I love true crime forums because, again, they let me pretend that I have friends. But one of the problems that consistently comes up with discussions of this case is that people try to apply modern standards to this case when they're not applicable. So I've seen a lot of people saying that Dorothy turning down her mother's offer to go with her was a sign that she was planning to disappear. It actually wasn't unusual for Dorothy to refuse her mother's company. Her mother was in very poor health at the time, and her mother would offer to go with Dorothy on excursions as a courtesy. This is just a song and dance that they have to do where her mother has to offer and Dorothy has to formally refuse. So Dorothy left the house at 11 a.m. carrying 25 to $30 with her. And again, the ripping continues. I've seen a lot of other true crime sites play this off as like, Dorothy disappeared with nothing but $25 in her pocket, which is technically... That's quite a bit of money. Yeah, in today's money, this is about seven to $800. Which yeah. is... You wouldn't walk around New York City with that today. 
if you want to live. If you have if you have seven hundred dollars in cash on you, you're gonna buy drugs, or you're going to be murdered, robbed, and then that person is going to buy drugs. My boyfriend lives in this like incredibly questionable apartment in Queens, and he's required to pay his rent in cash by delivering an envelope containing cash. Like it's a it's a four bedroom apartment. He just has to walk around Queens, New York City. With, like, $3,500 in cash once a month. Oh, no. And I feel like I should just line up a contingency boyfriend for when he inevitably gets murdered. That's a shame. He seemed nice. He's such a nice boy, but he does have to walk around New York City with several thousand in cash on his person occasionally. It's too bad someday he's gonna be a liquid. <laughs> He'll, he's not gonna make it to 35. <laughs> that was a shame. That was a quality, sturdy boyfriend. I liked that one. Yeah. Oof. I had $500 cash on me once in St. Albert, Alberta, which is like the richest, whitest suburb in Canada. And I thought I was going to die. So <laughs> this is a lot of money that she's carrying. And she left home in a very fine blue coat, a blue dress, and a large fur muff. And the muff was apparently large enough that she could have concealed items in it. But there's no sign that she took anything but the money. Just like a full wolverine in your hand warmer. <laughs> the hand warmer is a wolverine just rolled up into a ball like Sonic the Hedgehog. The rich like it fresh and organic. <laughs> mm. I don't understand fashion. You get used to luxury when you're that wealthy. Is walking around with a wild animal wrapped around your wrists really a luxury? I mean, if you're rich and weird enough, yes. Just like here... Feel my fox wrap. It's real fox. It will bite me if I forget to feed it. I have like a horseshoe theory about Bayou Hick behavior and rich white person living in Manhattan behavior. I think <laughs> the exact same kind of like weird, like eating extremely specific organs of animals not usually considered food, keeping large, extremely dangerous, exotic pets. I think there's a connection. <laughs> Marrying all of your cousins... <laughs> Look, the only difference between foie gras and just eating random duck liver is where you got the duck. <laughs> your crocodile's on a leash and you're eating some bird liver. <laughs> it's true. Whether or not having a pet crocodile is a sign of absolute wealth or abject poverty depends on how much your jeans cost. It's entirely a brand thing. <laughs> it's, all, it's all branding. As long as you've got them on a diamond leash, you can have whatever the fuck you want as a pet. <laughs> Dorothy walked from her home on 79th Street and to a Park and Trilford store, which is the name of the store. Uh, they don't exist anymore, but these were fancy high-end department stores. Uh, and this was on the corner of 5th Avenue and 27th Street, which is quite a hike. Like, by today's standards, mm. that's a hike. She walked 50 blocks. 52, if you're, again, if you're doing math on, on your weird millipede legs. There, at the store, Dorothy charged half a pound of chocolates to her account and stashed the candy in the muff she was carrying. She then left. Fun fact, the store that she went to where she made one of her last purchases is now a Chipotle. I checked. It contains no sign of Dorothy Arnold. I did. I looked. That'd be a fun place to haunt. Dorothy Arnold was not in the women's restroom at the Fifth Avenue Chipotle, so I've got nothing. Doing some field research. I did do. I went. I was hungry. At the Chipotle. Can you imagine if you died in a high-end apartment store and then it just became a Chipotle? How mad you'd be? you just had to haunt it? You're like, God, so mad. damn it, I have to haunt the steak tray. This this neighborhood has gone to the dogs. I just have to pop out of people's fucking burrito bowls. 
Soon it won't be the poorly cooked meat giving people digestive problems. It won't be the lettuce giving you a coli. It will be the poltergeist. <laughs> I'm going to give you the shits from beyond the grave. You died falling down a staircase that no longer exists, and now you're just slam dunking your face into a McDonald's french fry vat for the rest of your life. <laughs> the rest of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, oh, what is that? Oh, it's just the ghost. She just slams her face into the grill every couple of minutes. <laughs> Don't mind her. You get used to it. There's no smell. Awesome. Afterlife seems like fun. Yeah, you might feel a cold sensation ever going through your chest as you're flipping burgers. <laughs> yeah, my fries are cold. Yeah, because a 17th century widow fell through them. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> After getting the chocolate, Dorothy walked to a nearby bookstore where she purchased a book of humorous essays called Engaged Girl Sketches by Emily Calvin Blake. Both of the clerks who served Dorothy that day said that she appeared to be behaving normally and she didn't show any signs of suspicious or unusual behavior. She was very polite and courteous to the clerks. These were people who knew her. Like I said, she went to rather high-end stores in a fancier neighborhood of Manhattan. Nothing about her interaction with anybody that day was unusual. After leaving the bookstore, um, Dorothy ran into a friend of hers named Gladys King on the sidewalk outside. It was a smaller town back then. What, what can I tell you? The only people who go to these stores are you and, like, 400 of your major acquaintances. Like, if you're the only people who can afford them. I don't know. Yeah, this is actually true. Dorothy had minor celebrity status because of her family. So she was quite recognizable by members of the general public in New York City at the time. She would have frequented locations and interacted with people uh, who kind of were in her same social standing. It's like two celebrities running into each other in New York City. It's not that unusual. She was basically the naked cowboy of New York City. Everybody kind of knows who she is. She's not, like, famous famous, but... A known She's a known entity. Like the duck lady here. There's a duck lady? Yeah, mo uh, Mother Goose, or as she's otherwise known, the duck lady, although I'm less impressed by that, that nom nomenclature, uh, is a little old woman who dresses in a flowery lace bonnet. She pushes a modified baby carrier with an entire live duck inside, the duck wearing a matching lace collar. Oh. Yeah, she's a frequent sight in downtown Vancouver. Don't you dare and punch her duck. she let me pet her son. Do not she punch her duck. She let me pet her son. Like like a human <laughs> son, or she's letting you pet her duck son? My, her duck son, obviously. I don't want to pet her human son. Ew. Those are Gross. sticky. Duck I'd son, punch though? him. I'll pet the shit out of some duck son. I'll, I'll pet any duck son you want me to, son. The Edmonton equivalent is probably five cat hat homeless guy. Just don't punch her goddamn duck. I, don't, I will... I, I can't help you if you end up having to go to a human rights tribunal because you punched a, a very unfortunate woman's duck son <laughs> and caused irreparable psychological damage. I don't even know what they do to you at that point. Maybe they just... He, he better just uh, not start a beef with me and then I won't have to make him into pate. This, this podcast will not survive the Twitter roasting that you would get for doing that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going down with your ship. But you'll disappear for me, right? Absolutely. I'm, I'm planning to disappear anyway. Just mail your blood to whoever you need to mail it to. Dorothy ran into a friend of hers named Gladys King, and the two chatted about the upcoming debutante party for a brief moment, and then Gladys told Dorothy that she had to leave to meet her mother for lunch at the Waldorf Astoria, which is a fancy hotel in Midtown Manhattan. One of the Muppets is named after it. Yes, 
And also everything in New York is named after Waldorf or Astoria. Those are two of the original wealthy families that had all of the money. They still have all of the money. Um, <laughs> I actually added in my notes the phrase, eat the rich. I was having a good time researching this. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> The rigidity of American class structure is fascinating. It is, isn't it? But before Gladys left, Dorothy told her that she was planning to walk home through Central Park. Dorothy was last seen standing on the corner of 5th Avenue and 27th Street at 2pm when Gladys turned around to wave goodbye to her for the second time. After that, we do not know where Dorothy went or what happened to her. This is the last confirmed sighting. There's theories and possibilities, and we'll dive into all of those, but there is no hard evidence and no clues that point in any direction. It is essentially as if she vaporized. And like it said in the beginning of the podcast, she disappeared from one of the busiest streets in the world surrounded by people who would have recognized her on site. Dorothy's family first noticed that something was wrong when Dorothy failed to show up for dinner that night. Dorothy never skipped family meals without calling the family to let them know. And when she didn't turn up for dinner and there was no phone call, they immediately knew that something was deeply wrong. So Dorothy's mother and began. Hmm? This might seem weird. Like why? Like why are they keeping this close of tabs on her? But like this is a very different time. It's a little more normal to keep tabs on your adult daughter. But also. This is pre-cell phone. You're supposed to call when plans change. Also, like, the role of an unmarried 25-year-old in the upper class is very different. Um, You know, we have this kind of view that people had to grow up quickly at the turn of the century, and it is true that, like, if you were lower class and you were impoverished, you you know, you had to start working for a living to support your family at, you know, 15 or Mm -hmm. 12, whatever age. But in the upper classes, you were essentially a child until you were married. If you were an upper middle class woman, you were expected to live in your parents' house. You were expected to have very close relations with your family. The rich could afford a certain extended adolescence. They still can. Mm -hmm. It goes into your early 40s now. It's great. Yeah. Why do people keep calling Donald Trump's sons boys? It's I was just going to make that exact comment. They, they have children of their own. Like, big ones. But yeah, because because Dorothy was unmarried and because of her social status, yeah, she didn't really have the, the freedom to come and go. She had, And she had already just had this scandal where she had gone behind her parents' back. But they were concerned about her. This was unlike her. She was, she was not the type of person to just skip meals and not let them know where she was. So Dorothy's mother began to call up all of Dorothy's friends in a desperate attempt to locate her. Their fear for their daughter, however, was not as great as their fear for their own reputation. This has kind of been twisted in a lot of modern articles written about this case, but having Dorothy go missing would have brought a lot of potentially negative media coverage and social shame on the family, and they knew it. When Dorothy failed to turn up for dinner, their first thought was not that Dorothy was in any kind of danger or that something bad had happened to her. Their first concern was that, hey... Having your unmarried 25 daughter run off without telling anybody is a really great way to start some incredibly ugly rumors, and the Arnold family was desperate to avoid this. She already sort of had a habit. She'd already done this in in a very major way. It would be ruinous to the family reputation. Yeah, they they were not concerned for her safety. They were more concerned for the fact that she was behaving in an undecorous way, at least initially. So when Dorothy's friend Elsie Henry called Mary Arnold back just after midnight to ask if they'd found Dorothy yet, Mary replied that they had. 
Elsie asked to speak with Dorothy, and Mary hesitated for a moment before claiming that Dorothy had gone to bed with a headache. And for the record, this is a lie. Again, there was no sign of Dorothy ever again, after she was last seen at 5th Avenue and 27th Street at 2pm. This was saving social face because they assumed that they were going to find her. Yes, exactly. They assumed she was just going to be in a whole bunch of shit and they didn't they didn't want to make this into a big deal and they knew that if they said no we hadn't found Dorothy that you know this would there would be rumors by sunup. And they didn't want mm-hmm. that. So when Dorothy hadn't turned up by the morning, the family contacted their lawyer and family friend John S Keith to help them deal with the situation. John S. Keith was a colleague of their sons, who they'd known for some time, and they had complete trust in him. So Keith came over to the family home, and he conducted a thorough search of Dorothy's room to see if he could find any clues to tell them where she'd gone. He found that none of Dorothy's clothes or possessions were missing, except for the outfit she'd had on when she left the house the previous day, which pointed to this not being a planned disappearance. Nothing was missing, except for the clothes that she had on her back, essentially. And although she did leave the house with quite a bit of money, this was fancy dress money. This was not start a new life money. Inside Dorothy's desk were several letters with foreign postmarks, which was unexpected, as well as two folders with information about transatlantic steamship journeys. There were also the remnants of burned papers in the fireplace, although there wasn't enough of these papers left to determine what they were. In the aftermath of the disappearance, it's assumed that those were Dorothy's rejected manuscripts, that she'd burned them in the fireplace, but we don't actually know for sure what that was. Dorothy's parents refrained from calling the police for several weeks. Instead, they had Keith contact local hospitals, morgues, and jails in the New York City area, as well as some in Philadelphia and Boston, looking for some trace of Dorothy. And I've seen a lot of people make a big deal out of the fact that the family lawyered up and didn't contact the police. But again, you have to understand this is a different time. It is a different social world. Applying modern standards to this case doesn't make sense. Yeah, because in the modern day, we live in a post-Amber Alert society where everybody knows that the first 48 hours are the most important. And everyone would be sympathetic to your daughter going missing. And wouldn't assume that she was out whoring. Eloping with somebody because your family disapproves of the match is just not common today. No. Whereas back in Dorothy's day, that was actually a a reasonable explanation for your daughter suddenly disappearing. Uh, Because in this day and age, no one can legally or legally bar you from marrying anybody you want. Yeah, they can't interfere and you you don't need your parents' approval to get married in quite the same way that Dorothy would have. So the concern was not that Dorothy had been harmed or that she had been killed. This was a fairly naive time when it came to that sort of crime. The concern was that she was with a man that they wouldn't have approved of or that she was she was off doing something she shouldn't be doing. So for people of this social standing in this era, protecting their reputation was everything. Again, this is Dorothy's a descendant of one of the original Mayflower passengers and she's the niece of a Supreme Court justice. This would have brought down a hailstorm of media attention, and when the when the case did eventually come to light, it, it did. Everything that they were afraid of did eventually happen. But having Dorothy apparently seem to run off, probably would have, with a man, would have been the height of embarrassment. And the things that people may have said could have ruined the family. So this becoming the subject of gossip and rumors could have really isolated the family from their social circles. It could have affected their younger daughter's chances at courtship. There was all kinds of consequences they were afraid of. Yeah, and probably also afraid of them for her. Yeah, and yeah, they didn't want to ruin Dorothy's reputation when she was found. They wanted this to be something that they dealt with quietly. Also, 
the family lawyer back then was basically a part of the family. This is somebody who knows all of mm-hmm. your secrets. They deal with all your money, your will, all the family dirty laundry. They basically just deal with anything that you don't want to deal with. So mm-hmm. the the job description of lawyer was a lot broader back in the day. You you didn't lawyer up back then the way that you do now. This is more just somebody you yeah, kind of have on fixer. the payroll to sort of deal with things that you don't want to deal with. Um, and to handle all your documents. To the average person, you don't get a lawyer to deal with these things because you don't have enough of these things to just have a permanent person for. When you're part of, part of a large, rich family, it's actually kind of reasonable to have a lawyer the same way you would have a gardener. And yeah, this is this is not lawyering up the way that like Scott Peterson hired a lawyer after his wife disappeared. This is more just like they're calling on a professional to handle a situation with discretion they had less belie- reason to believe that she was in danger and more reason to believe that she was currently playing a rousing game of hide the penis with a man that they deeply disapproved of. But when Keith wasn't able to find any trace of Dorothy, he urged the family to hire the Pinkerton National Detective Agency to track her down. Which they did. Uh, Pinkerton is a private security and investigation agency that's been around since about 1850, and frankly they could be an episode unto themselves because they are fascinating. Oh, yeah, and they're primarily known for breaking unionist faces, so, yeah. They've done some questionable things, but they are quite good at what they do, even if that thing is breaking faces. If you want effective, but not necessarily super ethical, Pinkerton's your man. They will break any face you want. Point him in a direction. They have a Pavlovian reaction to an unbroken face. (laughs) (laughs) If they see you organizing for better healthcare, it just brings out the (laughs) bloodlust. They throw socialist pamphlets at them to get them riled up. They are detectives and security for hire. They don't particularly care who's hiring them. So in this case, they weren't really doing this. They didn't need public, private security, rather. The time for that had already passed. That's that's really uh, hiring, uh, closing the barn door after the horse has disappeared from the corner of 5th Avenue and 27th Street. But... Um, They did hire private detectives, and these private detectives interviewed Dorothy's friends, family, and former college classmates. They also searched local hospitals and checked places that Dorothy was known to frequent, which all of this seems like things that probably should have been done right after she disappeared, but eh, I'm not a 19th century detective, what the fuck do I know? They found no trace of Dorothy, and they found absolutely no clues to where she had gone. The fact that Dorothy had information about steamship trips in her bedroom, as well as letters with European postmarks, made the detectives suspect that she may have run off to Europe, which is the finest fucking detective work I've ever heard of. (laughs) What a... Well done. They've solved it. That's a real real thinker. Um, But they assumed that she may have run off to Europe, possibly to elope. So the agents searched marriage records all over Europe, but they did not find any in her name. They also sent agents over to inspect passengers who had arrived on steamships from New York, and although they found several women who fit her description... Uh, they turned out to be no trace of her. <clears throat> At this point, Keith and the private detectives realized they were not going to find Dorothy on their own, and that handling this situation quietly was not going to be an option. Five to six weeks after Dorothy disappeared, her father Francis finally contacted the NYPD to report Dorothy missing. The police told the Arnold family that in order to solve this case, they needed to draw as much publicity to it as possible, which the family was not keen on doing. <laughs> they were, did not like that answer. <laughs> They, they didn't. It's exactly the thing that they were afraid of. It's like, hey, do you want to get this snake out of your living room? The first thing you need is more snakes. 
<laughs> so after a bit of resistance, Francis Arnold finally agreed to hold a press conference about his daughter's disappearance at his office. The press conference was held on January 25th, 1911. This is now a month and a half after Dorothy disappeared. Francis Arnold announced to the assembled reporters that there was a $1,000 reward for information leading to the return of Dorothy, which is approximately $27,000 in today's money. This is the price on my daughter's head. Find her. I'd I'd hunt down a a lost heiress for $27,000. I'd do it. Absolutely. I will drag her back from Portugal by her ear. I'm going on a pretentious blue blood blood safari. (laughs) You can't just blow dart anyone who's wearing an expensive coat. She looks like your daughter. Money, please. That's that's a crime. That's actually probably several crimes. She's, she's, <laughs> she smells like Chanel number five. I'm pretty sure it's her. <laughs> Depending on how creative the judge gets, that's, that's several crimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, at the press conference, one of the reporters spoke up to ask Dorothy's father if she hadn't simply run away with a man. Again, this is the big assumption people are going on, that she's just run off with some man. Because the reporter said he'd heard that Francis didn't allow Dorothy to date. Francis Arnold was very upset by this comment, and he responded, I would have been glad to see her associate more with young men than she did, especially some young men of brains and position, one whose profession or business would keep him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. You can't really make a comment like that to a room full of reporters without them trying to figure out what the fuck you meant by that there's a there's some obvious hidden meaning you are obviously throwing shade at somebody it sounds defensive it, and it was defensive after some digging reporters figured out that he was referencing george griscom jr a man dorothy had been dating against her parents wishes griscom who went by the name jr was a 42 year old heir to a wealthy pittsburgh family He and Dorothy had met while she was living in Pennsylvania to attend Bryn Mawr College. He was trained as an engineer, but had no need or desire to work, so he didn't. He just, he didn't do anything. He did nothing. He lived with his parents, and he he did nothing at all, which means I would have dated the shit out of him, had we been contemporaries. Does he have an uncanny resemblance to a greased-up weasel? Is he skinny and and writing a manifesto? Absolutely. We're making some specific attacks on Janelle's dating life this episode. I'm not... I'm uncomfortable. Hey, I'm willing to bet your current boyfriend has no manifestos. He almost definitely has never been on an active shooter watch list. Because he grew up in a country where guns are illegal. (laughs) (laughs) You've shown real growth. I've met a man who was not a deformed weirdo living in the basement of an opera house, and I managed to become attracted to him anyway. With hard work and (laughs) determination, you too can date a man who has never kidnapped a woman. (laughs) Never stole a person. Maybe you'll consider me picky. I consider that a must-have. I want a man who has groomed an underage girl with years' worth of singing lessons only to lure her into an underground boat. That's what I want. <laughs> I, my tastes are specific. My Tinder account is wild. <laughs> yeah, Junior lived with his parents and just didn't do anything, which was the main issue that Dorothy's father had with him. He had no ambition, and he was basically content to just spend the rest of his life living off the family fortune and traveling with his parents when they went on vacation. This was the boyfriend that Dorothy had been caught traveling to Boston with. She told her parents that she was traveling to visit an old college classmate who now lived in Boston. 
In reality, she had hawked $500 worth of family jewels to pay for a week-long stay in a fancy hotel with her boyfriend. Her parents were livid when they found out about this. Absolutely livid. some high-class canoodling. Most parents would be pissed off if you did this today, and you can't ruin your entire family today with that kind of thing. No. You definitely could back then. That's just a funny Thanksgiving anecdote now. (laughs) Back then, that's eternal shame. She could have destroyed his empire. Yeah, hundreds of years to build this fortune and empire. She could have brought that crashing down. Dorothy, of course, did not listen to her parents. They forbade her from ever seeing him again. But she continued the relationship. So her and she and Junior saw each other for the final time in early November of 1910, before he left for an extended vacation in Italy with his parents. The Arnolds, of course, immediately suspected that Dorothy had run off to join her boyfriend in Italy. When they learned that he was in Florence, Italy, they sent him a telegram on December 16th, 1910, this is four days after Dorothy disappeared, demanding to know if he had any knowledge of Dorothy's whereabouts. Junior replied that this was the first he'd ever heard of Dorothy's disappearance and that he had no idea where she was. In January of 1911, Francis Arnold told friends and family that his wife had gone to New Jersey to deal with the stress of Dorothy going missing. In reality, however, she went to Italy with her son John to confront Junior in person. Just coming out, snapping their fingers, just... No, it's not a West Side Story confrontation. They're just like, you, where is Dorothy? No, that's not... Where is my daughter? No, (laughs) nobody was... Nobody's shaking maracas and demanding, I wanna be in America. No, that's not... (laughs) Where the fuck is Dorothy? Don't bring shame on my family. (laughs) (laughs) No, this is why they don't let us write for Broadway. Rodgers and Hammerstein, we are not. (laughs) Although I could, apparently, as you informed me earlier this week, I could absolutely be Elder Cunningham. Okay, you are the embodiment of the role of Elder Cunningham in the Book of Mormon musical, and it freaks (laughs) me out, and I almost don't remember what the play was about, because I was just like, why did Jessica not tell me she's moonlighting as a male Broadway actor? (laughs) (laughs) No, like, you said Elder Cunningham, I looked him up, and I'm like, holy shit, I just found my twin. (laughs) If you're, if you're a fan of this podcast, you've got a pretty good grasp on Jessica's unusual appearance and personality. I urge you to look up the Book of Mormon. It's about an asthmatic, overweight little weirdo who decides to just make shit up about the Mormon church. It's essentially what would happen if Jessica was a man who also happened to be a Latter-day Saint. It's, it's fascinating. It was eerie. Yes. Yes. It's it's uncanny, but yes, that's it was incredibly distracting. <laughs> so yes, uh, we will not we will not be writing musicals in the foreseeable future because I think even suggesting it, uh, I could power this laptop with the Gilbert and Sullivan rolling over in their graves. Broadway, I I feel Broadway's call. You're gonna be the weirdest audition they've ever had for the weirdest musical that's currently on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> There was a confrontation in Junior's hotel room where John Arnold demanded to know what Junior had done with his sister and allegedly even threatened to get violent if Junior had harmed her. Junior reiterated that he had no knowledge of the disappearance. He said that the first he'd ever heard of it was when they sent him this telegram. John then demanded that he hand over the letters Dorothy had been sending him and Junior complied. 
We won't actually know what was in those letters, though, because John said that there was nothing of consequence in them and that he destroyed them. Of course he did. Right? Why would you not preserve evidence of your dead sister? Just just toss that shit in the flames. It's cold in here. In Florence, Italy. It's cold on the water. John and his mother returned home to a media shitstorm in February of 1911. John told the press, quote, There is nothing to say. My mother has nothing to tell you. She is upset by the circumstances, and I wish you would, I wish you would not ask to see her. The reporters did not listen to this at all, because of course they didn't, and they asked Mary Arnold if she was giving up the search for her daughter. She replied, yes, we have exhausted every mean we, means we know of to find Dorothy. She also told reporters that she would never consent to a match between Dorothy and George Griscom Jr. John and Mary claimed that after returning home, they were informed by sources close to Dorothy that she had expressed her interest in marriage to him and that he had refused to marry her. When Junior came home that same month, however, he was also greeted by a media shitstorm, and he told the media that he intended to marry Dorothy, and that he always had, and that he would marry her just as soon as she was found, so long as her mother approved of the marriage, which kind of seems like a get-out-of-marriage-free card, but hey, what do I know? I've just been dating men for my entire adult life. To his credit, he spent thousands and thousands of dollars taking out ads in major newspapers, imploring Dorothy to come home and marry him. Dorothy's mother, however reiterated to the press that she would never, ever, ever approve. We're full on having this fight in public. Yeah, we're just having a public fight over whether or not I'm going to marry your hypothetical dead or alive daughter if she hypothetically comes back. Yeah, like, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not just, like, airing the dirty laundry. We're having a full on dirty laundry fight on the front patio. It's, it's kind of like, like, two kids having a, like, my dad can beat up your dad discussion if both of their dads had gone missing from a street corner. That had never been seen again. We have a Schrodinger's dead heiress problem on our hands, and we're currently fighting over which one of you, like, which one of you gets to decide who she marries? That's, that's how they decided to handle this. Like I said, it became a media and gossip shitstorm, and that's exactly what the Arnolds knew it was going to be. So by the end of January 1911, the NYPD told the press that they believed Dorothy was still alive and that she had disappeared voluntarily and would eventually return on her own volition. Dorothy's parents, however, told the media at this time that they were convinced Dorothy was dead. So they gave up hope really fast. They, uh, they did not carry that torch for too long. Uh, they, they switched that porch light off immediately. When you were five years old, you wandered off with, like, a package of cookies. <laughs> then you come back and, like, the locks are changed. <laughs> You're just five and you get lost in the mall, so your parents throw a funeral the next day. <laughs> they just leave immediately and go straight to pick out a coffin just like well he's dead that's we'll never see yeah, her again you, like it's your mom's already in full mourning clothes <laughs> wearing a black veil she's like i could almost hear her voice and she's like mom i'm over here <laughs> yeah you got turned around at the grocery store now you you're legally dead you don't have a social security number anymore it's just it's a fun anecdote <laughs> so by the end of February 1911, which is the a month later, uh, police changed their tune and they announced that they believed Dorothy was dead and they would no longer be searching for her. And I don't fully huh. understand why one follows another. The deputy police commissioner said, The girl has now been missing 75 days and in all that time not a single clue has been found that was worth the name. We have no evidence that a crime has been committed and the case is now one of a missing person and nothing more. 
which is a, a very strange sentiment if you believe she's dead. Like, well, she's been yeah. gone for 75 days. We have no clue. She's probably dead. We're not going to look anymore. This is no longer a crime. What? Bye. We think she's dead. No crime here. I don't... Again, I'm not a policeman, but that seems... It seems lazy as shit. Um, I mean, if you think she's dead, that seems pretty criminal. They just, they didn't have any clues and they had nowhere else to go. They were like, we've checked all the hospitals and morgues. Like, I give up. That's it. She didn't run off to Europe. So, <sniffs> basically. Beats me. Now, lunch. <laughs> she's probably dead. Excuse me <laughs> while I go get myself a pint. <laughs> uh, time for, time for a Reuben. Time for some roast beef on rye. Let's do it. That's just, that's everything in New York. You have to, you, they have to find you in 72 hours or you lose out to pastrami. There had been no credible sightings of Dorothy since her disappearance, but there had been a handful of hoaxes. So the Arnolds received two separate ransom demands asking about $5,000 for her safe return. Both were found to be hoaxes. Yeah, because if, if they were serious, if they actually had her, they would have asked for way more than that. I mean, that's quite a bit of money, but yeah, they, they probably would have gone much higher and... Also, the fact that these ransom demands only came in more than six weeks after the disappearance, after the reward was announced, is a pretty solid sign yeah. that they don't actually have her. This is a bunch of people who saw this in the paper and thought, like, why not make a quick buck off of somebody's grief? <laughs> Cashing in on a grieving family. What a way to make a living. Woo! The Arnolds also received a postcard in the mail with a New York City postmark. The card simply read, I am safe, Dorothy. The family confirmed that it was written in Dorothy's handwriting. However, major newspapers had published handwriting samples of Dorothy's to help the public identify her. Because, man, back in the day when you went missing, they just... It all went into the newspaper. Home address. Just immediately. Blood type. Likes and dislikes. You know, various birthmarks. They just take dig out your whole medical record and publish it. They're just like, yeah. Mm. How will we find her if we don't know what every pimple on her butt looks like? In-depth rotoscoping of her kidneys. Here's her social security number and bank account number. This is <laughs> this is necessary. So it was it was concluded that a stranger had likely forged the note using the handwriting samples as a cruel joke. They figured it was unlikely that Dorothy had like gone missing and stayed within Manhattan. That seemed fairly yeah. unlikely. A jeweler in San Francisco also claimed to have seen Dorothy Arnold. He claimed that she came to his shop on January 7th, 1911 to have a diamond wedding ring engraved with the phrase to AJA from ERB, December 10th, 1910. It seems unlikely that this is significant, though, because one, that's not even the date she disappeared. She was still firmly in New York City uh, with her family on December 10th. Those are not her initials, and I mean... Can you really recognize her from San Francisco based on what you've seen in a newspaper? Yeah, like, these the newspapers were grainy as shit. You've got, like, cheap ink on cheap paper. It bleeds onto your hand as you're holding it. Everyone in the city just had black fingers from trying to read the news. Like, you were lucky if you understood anything that was written down. Or, uh, like, before you smudged it all and then you're just like, Oh, who got shot? Abraham Blinton? Who knows? Also, I mean, like, this is, he would have seen the paper several weeks after he saw this customer. I, I've worked retail. I've, I've flushed that face immediately. The moment you leave my till, you're dead to me. You, you can come back five minutes later. I don't know who the fuck you are. 
Except for the weird dude who used to hang out at my till offering me Sailor Moon stickers, they're all just a blur. That guy, however, is just deeply in the, like, the lizard part of my brain that protects me from predators was like, no, this man and his stickers are a threat. <laughs> I will remember his face till the day I die. You know, it's this just the main predators. Lynxes, lions, bears, tigers, middle-aged men offering you children's anime merchandise. You refuse to leave your Zeller's till when you're 15 years old. Those are all in the same category. So Dorothy's case officially went cold after February of 1911, and it has remained cold for 108 years. I mean, at this point, uh, not really holding out too much hope that we're going to find her. You don't know if she could walk back in the door any second. Just walk back into that Chipotle. Even if we do find her, I'm not really sure how we'd identify her. I could find Dorothy Arnold's skull in a thrift shop tomorrow. I'd have no idea what the shit that is. Gonna be a bit hard to ID. Yeah, as I said, we don't have DNA samples. I'm not sure if we have living relatives. We might. There are a few generations removed at this point, though. They'd be probably pretty easy to track down. They're in a book. True. Just the big book of rich people and where they live. This will be a very helpful book when society collapses. Um, you could probably use it to beat, I don't know, beat leopards to death with. Oh, a rich person's, after the zombie apocalypse, you got, like, those rich people walking around with, like, their, their half-dead roughs, and they have to, like, fight off other people's exotic pets. <laughs> They've just gone feral. This is what the rich do because we won't let them have the purge. They just fight their pet alligators. Yeah, just using a peerage manu manual to beat off a croc. <laughs> Man, the phrase beat off a croc has so many possible definitions. <laughs> All of them terrible. So many of them are bad. There's not a single good one in there. No, not a one. <laughs> well, this conversation went straight off the rails. <laughs> I'm now I'm thinking of it. I don't want to know which version you... No, that's not the one. Extremely thick manual. Various fancy people's names in, like, large rubber gloves. I don't want to know which one you're picturing. Just all of them are bad. Um, so Dorothy's father died in 1922. He specifically left Dorothy nothing in his will. This was specifically stated, saying that he is satisfied she is not alive. He never wavered in his belief that Dorothy had been killed on the day she disappeared. That's... It's depressed. He was, he was a... No-nonsense man, you're dead to me. You're like a perfume shipment. The moment you get dropped, you're just gone. I don't expect he did it. But there's something inherently suspicious of, like, I'm 100% certain she died on the day she went missing. How do I know? I, I couldn't tell you, but 100% certain. It's like I, I couldn't be more certain if I had stabbed her myself for being an embarrassing little harlot. Not that that's what happened. <laughs> Exactly what it sounds like. Dorothy's mother, tragically, or less tragically, I don't know, held out hope that Dorothy was still alive until the day she died in 1928. After the death of both of Dorothy's parents, however, the family lawyer John S. Keith made his first public statement on the case, saying he always believed that Dorothy had killed herself over her crushed dreams of becoming a writer. So that kind of leads, we'll get into this. We don't know where Dorothy went, because this would be an incredibly dull story if she just turned up six months later being like, went to Paris to find myself, took a bunch of selfies, uh... Eat, pray, love, did some mushrooms. Yeah, we don't, she didn't go fucking rumspringa in Europe and turn up 12 months later and also Amish. That would have been a fun story, but it's not the story that we have. 
we do have theories, and there are a couple big theories about what may have happened to her. All of them are at least somewhat plausible, but all of them have at least one glaring issue. So the first theory, and this one was very popular in New York right after the case broke, uh, this was a theory that there was an accident. It was very slippery on the day that Dorothy disappeared. Um, she did disappear in mid-December in New York City. Um, we get before the planet started to toast. They had real winter here. That's I mean that's not the case anymore. We got no snow this winter. But back when they had ice, snow, and shorelines that weren't constantly threatened by rising oceans, uh, the theory basically goes that Dorothy may have slipped and hit her head, either killing her or giving her serious amnesia. So they believe that she may have hit her head on the sidewalk and that she was sitting in some mental hospital somewhere with no idea of her name. A couple problems. One, that's not really how amnesia works. You don't tend to get retrograde amnesia from a head injury. You get enterograde amnesia, which are nerd terms. You don't forget things, you just lose the ability to create memories. Exactly. So people who have had serious head injuries tend to know exactly who they are. They tend to have all their memories from before the accident, save for maybe a couple days before the accident itself. They tend to struggle to create new memories. This is usually a temporary condition, but it is why people often don't have any memories of the days or weeks even surrounding a head injury, a significant head injury. So hitting your head and waking up in a hospital with no idea who you are, soap opera style, is just, it's not really a thing. Yeah, it's kind of why concussed people are really annoying to talk to, because you're going to have the same conversation 300 times. Yep, it's fun. Uh, I, I, don't concuss someone to test this, we're in enough shit already. Yeah, just hang but, around yes. hockey rinks. <laughs> It'll happen. It'll happen eventually. It's, it's gonna but, happen. The bigger problem with this theory is that Dorothy would have turned up eventually. Both yeah. the lawyer and the detectives were scouring morgues and hospitals for some sign of Dorothy, and nobody matching her description ever turned up. And even in 1911, I I have a hard time believing that you could just sort of slip and die in New York City and the, nobody would find you. There's not a lot of places you could leave shit in New York City and not have it get found eventually. Yeah, like, there's just there's too many people on that island. We've had 108 years to look, so I feel like dead woman in an alleyway, eventually somebody's gonna come to somebody's gonna check. repaint something and we're gonna find you. Yeah. Also, like, uh, if th they had found her in her the clothes she had disappeared in, it would have immediately drawn some red flags. Like, It's a dead giveaway. She was dressed fancy. very expensively. Mm. Yes. So the second major theory is the suicide theory. Although she appeared cheerful and was not behaving unusually in the days before her disappearance, it's kind of hard to deny that Dorothy's life wasn't going well when she disappeared. Dorothy had been rejected from magazines. Her writing career was going absolutely nowhere. Maybe she could have got, like, submitted to a magazine that wasn't, like, where everybody who's anybody submits. Maybe she should have started lower. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you're an aspiring writer in our audience, probably don't submit to The New Yorker twice and then kill yourself. It's, it's probably not a solid career move for you. Yeah, bust but, your nuts first. I mean, Dorothy was somebody who came from high society and was used to getting anything that she wanted. It's it's not an such a stretch to believe that Dorothy would think she had a real shot at getting published in these magazines. Up until now, like obstacles weren't really a thing for her. This was sort of the first serious one she'd ever encountered. No, this is not somebody who has, like, with a high tolerance and experience with frustration. 
I mean, in fairness, Dorothy was apparently quite delightful. She was quite charming. She was well-liked. She was described as outgoing, um, as very kind. But that doesn't change the fact that she has had a sheltered upbringing where she kind of has gotten everything she wanted. She went to an elite girls' school, and then she went to an elite women's college. This is somebody who's walking through the world as if it is a meadow. Even if she's perfectly lovely, this is not somebody with a lot of walls in her way. Oh, yeah, she's not just got a, you know, paved road to success. She's on a conveyor belt. She doesn't have a choice here. Mm -hmm. She was born famous. You will be relevant. You will be wealthy. Absolutely. From from the, the day she was born was the day she was put in the social register. But that said, she'd been rejected... Um, nobody was supporting her dreams as a writer. Nobody was thinking that this was a serious thing. She had been denied the opportunity to move out of her parents' apartment, um, or her parents' house into her own apartment in the village. Her parents did not approve of her relationship, and her lover had apparently refused to marry her when she expressed an interest in getting married. That's a lot of shitty things to happen to you all at once, especially if you are a somewhat sheltered woman in your mid-twenties. In one letter she sent to Junior shortly after her second magazine rejection, she said, Well, it has come back. McClure's has turned me down. Failure stares me in the face. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened. So, many people interpret this as her being suicidal. It's really not hard to see why. Yeah. Um, That's a pretty bleak thing to write. And it's important to note that many deeply depressed people are capable of acting normally in the days before they die by suicide. That's not uncommon. It's it's very, very common to see reports that people had no erratic or unusual behavior pretty much right up until the moment they died. The problem with this theory is that where the hell did her body end up? Yeah, that was my first thought. It's really hard to hide your own corpse. It is hard to hide your own corpse, especially in a place that has as much population density and foot traffic as New York City. Uh, the, the park is very well combed all the time. It's very difficult to kill yourself in Central Park and just not be found for 108 years. Yeah, like, the thickets aren't that thick. She would have been found eventually. If she meant to kill herself and make it look like an accident, which is kind of what the letter implies, she kind of did a shit job of it. I mean, you can't be more suspicious than just not showing up ever again. That points to it being a purpose. Yeah, and like, where would she have done it? How would she have done it? It's possible she threw herself into the East River or the Hudson River, but it would be a pretty miserable way to go in midwinter, and she would have washed up somewhere. And also, I mean, I don't want to be too incredibly gruesome. Apologies if this is upsetting. This is a city of tall buildings and large vehicles, and that was true in 1910. Uh, If you want to die and make it look like an accident, there are a lot of ways to accomplish that in New York City, but you are going to be found. But yeah, so another theory is the kidnap theory. Dorothy left the house that day in obviously expensive clothes. As we mentioned, she's wearing a blue tailored serge dress, which would look very expensive, a fine blue coat, a velvet hat, and a fox fur muff. It's possible that somebody tried to rob her or kidnapped her for ransom money, panicked, and then ended up killing her. This is actually what Dorothy's father believed happened to her. He thought she'd been attacked in Central Park and that her body had been thrown into the reservoir. Problem number one is that it would have been very hard to pull off a crime like this with no witnesses at 2pm in Manhattan. 
Yeah, that's there's still children's tour groups at that time of day. Also, the reservoir and the lakes in Central Park were frozen at the time of her disappearance. It had been minus 6 degrees Celsius, that's 21 degrees Fahrenheit for you American heathens, for most of the week leading up to the disappearance, and a search after the spring thaw did not turn up her body. And if she'd been attacked in the park and they hadn't thrown her body in the reservoir, how else will you dispose of it? In order to get her into the water, they would have just had to slam dunk her into the ice. Like, it's not subtle. You've just gotta smash a grave into the ice and hope nobody notices. Yeah. That you're frantically bludgeoning chips of ice with a frozen body. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how you're- if, like, if this was, like, an impromptu- an impromptu de- accidental death due to de- doing a robbery gone wrong, like, I hope the guy brought a sledgehammer. Yeah, and y- people are gonna notice if you start digging a goddamn grave in Sheep's Meadow in the middle of Central Park. You're- and if they didn't dispose her in Central Park, where the hell would they have taken her? People are going to stare at you. People yeah. will have questions if you go walking through Manhattan carrying a famous woman's corpse. Yeah, if you just weakened at Bernie like a rich heiress, people are going to be immediately suspicious. Like, you can't just put some sunglasses on her and drag her around. No, Manhattan has always been well patrolled by the NYPD, and that was true back then as well. So that seems unlikely. Also, the the reservoirs and lakes in, in Central Park are a closed system. They don't they don't connect to the ocean. They're just there. There's yeah, nowhere for the body cool to go. Water. I don't know about that one. Uh, there's also a, a theory that's popular on message boards now that say that the family did it. This theory basically goes that Dorothy's family were embarrassed of their daughter or felt that she was bringing the family shame somehow. So they got rid of her and then refrained from calling the police for six weeks because they didn't want anyone digging into the case too closely. I personally am inclined to think this is sort of nonsense. I mean, don't let me tell you how to think. Make your own decisions. But they were rich. It would have been really easy for them to say that Dorothy was just off finding herself in Europe or some shit. Yeah, they could have kept this going for years. Nobody's investigating what they say. If they say that she's in Europe finding herself, she's in Europe finding herself. They could have kept this fiction going for decades. They also really seem to make a genuine effort to find Dorothy. All told, they spent around $100,000 on the search efforts in 1910s money, which is an incredible amount of money today. Even the day she went missing, she was out and about. She probably intended to be out for several more hours. She hadn't even done the main thing she was out to do. They wouldn't have known where she was when she went missing. And unless she went missing shortly after her last sighting, she would have been seen again. Like, was her father lurking in the bushes? They would have had no way of knowing where she was, let alone sending a hitman out after her, and also why. The fact that they concluded that Dorothy was dead so quickly may have had more to do with their own need for closure rather than any inside knowledge of the case. Of course, another big theory is that the boyfriend did it. This is a true crime staple. If a woman goes missing and she has a boyfriend, that dude's gonna get accused of doing it, even if he was on the actual moon at the time. Yeah, just because, like, statistically, the people who are most likely to kill you are the people with an emotional attachment to you. What so, a fun species! Whenever you're near the ones you, whenever you're near the ones you love, that's when you're most likely to die. I just any time, any time a loved one, like an aunt or a close relative, is hugging you. 
they're not hugging you. They're sizing up your strength with their arms in order to see how, how easy you would be to take down. I, I suspect you may have been raised by boa constrictors, but I'm, <laughs> it's actually, it explains so much that I'm not really going to question it. <laughs> but the, the boyfriend has, has sort of, uh, I mean, for, for starters, he's a terrible candidate because he was on vacation in Italy with his parents at the time. And this is not an era where you can just sort of hop on a quick transatlantic flight back to New York to kill your girlfriend real quick. No, that's not he, so. No, uh, he was in Italy with his parents. Everybody knew that he was there. And although he and Dorothy continued to exchange letters, Dorothy's brother John said the letters contained nothing of consequence. Junior denied having any knowledge of Dorothy's whereabouts or any contact with her after her disappearance. Staff at the hotel he was staying at did report that they had seen him speaking to a, quote, veiled woman who turned up at the hotel in an agitated state, and the staff believe this may have been Dorothy. Why? Who knows? We don't know all the details of their relationship, and we never will. The relationship was mostly kept under wraps due to her parents' disapproval, and reports that Junior had refused to marry Dorothy were told to her family secondhand. In the wake of her disappearance, Junior claimed that he did want to marry her and that he would do so immediately, so we'll never really know what the real state of their relationship was. All that we know is that Junior was on a different continent at the time of her disappearance and that his he didn't really have any clear motives to harm her. Junior didn't profit from her disappearance. He actually lost quite a bit of money as he poured a ton of resources and money into the search for her, and he didn't really benefit from her going missing at all. He lost his girlfriend, her family went ballistic on him, the press went after his own family, and the whole thing was just a mess. He wasn't married to Dorothy. He didn't need to kill her to get out of a relationship with her. He could have yeah, ended that shit with a her. phone call. Yeah, you just send her a telegram, like, it's over, stop. And mm -hmm. that's that's pretty much it. You can just ghost her. She knows where you are, because, like, you're wet, rich and wealthy and unimportant. But, like, you can just stop talking to her. God, ghosting would have been so easy in the 1910s. You can both literally and figuratively. <laughs> it's just like, oh, well, I ate undercooked chicken, so I'm dead now. Or yeah. did I just move to Texas without telling you? Guess what? It's both. I'm haunting a Chipotle. <laughs> is it Scarlet Fever? Did I move to Nebraska? This is a fun game. Yeah, yeah. Especially because people just died way easier, so you'd, p people would just accept whatever bullshit excuse you gave them. There was there was a rusty nail. She brushed past it. I don't know what to tell you. Just died of lockjaw. <laughs> That's a thing that happens now. It's a horrifying time to be alive. We're not going to show you the body because her 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 jaw genuinely became unhinged. She basically, basically like the exorcist in here. Yeah, I mean, but you just, you're just living in an era where there's just no food safety and everything is poo. There's just, there's poo everywhere. You're, you're, you're gonna get sick. Like, the walls are made of cholera. <laughs> Give him a good lick. Junior also didn't have any other women in his life that he would have offed Dorothy to be with, at least not that we know of, and he actually died in 1938 having never married. He spent the rest of his life just living off the family fortune, not dating, and not getting married. There's also the possibility that Dorothy disappeared voluntarily, although again, this seems quite unlikely. She left with money, but she didn't leave with start a new life money, and it's unlikely that a 25-year-old woman who has always been taken care of and has never lived on her own would have the life skills to just sort of like start over in a new state yeah it feels like even if she tried she'd come marching back pretty quick 
And in the media shitstorm that followed her disappearance, it seems unlikely she could have ever made a clean break. Her face was circulated in the newspaper. People were calling in tips from as far away as San Francisco. It just, it doesn't seem like there's anywhere she could have gone where she wouldn't have been recognized. Not anywhere she could survive in. No, I don't think she was out in a cabin in Wisconsin somewhere. That just seems like a great way to die. Christopher McCandless style. That's not... (laughs) It doesn't seem like camping is one of her fortes. Plot twist, she was eaten by a bear. Dorothy Arnold, eaten by bear. Hot take of the century. (laughs) We've cracked the case. She was there in front of Maura Murray and her her, her boyfriend Jim Comey in the book Bigfoot. They saw the whole thing. You aren't good at conspiracy theories. Not everybody can have a love nest in the woods with Bigfoot. I mean, we can only dream. I also like that your theory is that Maura Murray came out of the woods to greet Dorothy Arnold, what, a hundred years before she was born? Time travel. That's actually why she came here. Maura Murray, from one of our first episodes, is a time-traveling wife of Bigfoot. That's (laughs) That's a hot take. Gotta wear oven mitts for that one. (laughs) Perhaps one of the most interesting theories, though, is the final one. This is the abortion theory, and this is one of the most popular theories that circulated after the disappearance. The the family just had an extremely, extremely, extremely post-birth abortion? No, that's uh, 25 years. You don't get to go a quarter of a century and still call it abortion. I feel like you get to say forced... Post-birth abortion till about 10. After that, it's just homicide. <laughs> I don't know. The rich can afford an extended adolescence. Maybe they can ex- afford an extended fetushood. Not only are you not reaching adulthood at 25, yeah, you're not even reaching birth. If you've got enough money, they can hook you back up to an umbilical cord. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. If you're a wealthy heiress who has never worked a day in your life, when you're 25, I still consider you a non-sentient entity. <laughs> You're basically jello in a dress. You don't do anything. <laughs> so, but this theory goes that Dorothy got pregnant, presumably by Junior, and that this was the situation which prompted her to request marriage and prompted him to turn her down. Dorothy, so the theory goes, didn't want to put herself or her family through the embarrassment of being an unwed mother, so she sought out an illegal abortion. The abortion was botched, Dorothy died, and her body was disposed of, likely by being cremated in the clinic furnace. Her father called this theory, quote, ridiculous and absolutely untrue. The rumor, however, did gain strength when an illegal abortion clinic in the basement of a house in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, was raided by police in April of 1916 and found to be responsible for the deaths of several women who had gone there. The clinic had come to be known by locals as the House of Mystery because so many young women had disappeared after making appointments there. And I feel like if your doctor operates out of a place called the House of Mystery, you need to keep shopping for a doctor. That doesn't feel very mysterious to me. I mean, I just I just like the idea that it's like, what do I shop for in a doctor? I mean, wait time, uh, convenience of scheduling an appointment... How many of your patients have never been seen or heard from again? (laughs) One of the doctors who worked at the House of Mystery testified to the New York District Attorney that the head doctor who ran the place, Dr. Cece Meredith, confided in him that Dorothy Arnold had died at the house from complications of an abortion and was cremated, just like the house's other victims, in the furnace. 
Huh. The family lawyer revealed that in two months after Dorothy's disappearance, he had actually gotten a tip that Dorothy had been sighted at a hospital in P- Pittsburgh, which is very close to Bellevue. Bellevue is a suburb of Pittsburgh. But when that was investigated, the woman that was pointed out to him was not Dorothy. But perhaps Dorothy had been seen in Pittsburgh when she arrived to visit the clinic, and this was simply a mix-up. It's also worth remembering that Junior's hometown was Pittsburgh. This is where he was from, and it's not inconceivable that he would have had connections to arrange an abortion in his hometown. There are, however, some serious problems in this story. For one, the story was never confirmed by the doctor who was alleged to have actually performed the fatal abortion. The only account was from someone who said that C.C. Meredith had told him about it, but he hadn't been there. Dorothy's case was very, very famous in the area at the time, and it's not impossible that a shady doctor who was already in huge trouble would use the opportunity to just cash in. Yeah, this feels like book deal kind of bullshit. It does. Secondly, Bellevue is in western Pennsylvania, which is quite a hike from New York City. It is a six-hour drive or a nine-hour bus trip in 2019. It would have taken much longer than that to get there a hundred years ago. How would Dorothy have gotten there without being seen by anybody? For this story to work out, we have to assume that that Dorothy, maybe with Junior's help from Italy, maybe not, set out to make a multi-day trip without any luggage or a change of clothes with nothing but a book and half a pound of chocolate. We have to assume that she or Junior somehow arranged transportation and accommodations in Pennsylvania, and that none of the people she talked to in order to make that happen came forward to claim the reward money after she disappeared. So it seems logistically complicated. Even if Junior helped to arrange this, Junior is in Italy. She would have needed more accomplices. Well, she would have, yeah. She would have had to have had somebody drive her to Bellevue. She would have had to have somewhere to stay. It seems unlikely that she could just not be spotted or that everybody who helped her to get there would just sort of stay silent. Like, if you drove her in a private car, you'd remember Yeah, well, that brings us to a second possible version of the abortion story. So the same month that the Pennsylvania Clinic was being raided, in April of 1916, an inmate at a Rhode Island correctional facility named Edward Glenaris told a warden that he'd been paid $250 to dispose of the remains of a young woman in December of 1910. According to Glenaris, an acquaintance that he knew only by the name Little Louie hired him to pick up an unconscious woman from a home in New Rochelle, New York, which is a town in Westchester County, just north of the Bronx, and drive her to a different home in West Point, New York. He said that he and Louis met two men in the New Rochelle home, one who went by the name Doc, and one who was, quote, wealthy and well-dressed. Glenaris's description of the second man actually closely matched Junior, Dorothy's lover, although, again, he's in Italy, and I feel like all rich, upper-class white dudes from Pittsburgh probably look about the same. We cannot state enough that he was in Italy! A lot of people really make a big deal out of the fact that the second man on the scene closely matched Junior's description, but if you look at pictures of Junior, Junior is a average height man of average build with brown hair and brown eyes. Yeah. I mean, it's not a lot to go on. Yeah, like, one, that's the demographic of, like, the median serial killer, but also, like, that's just the median man in America at the time. I was going to say, that's also your median fourth grade math teacher, so I don't really know where they're going with this. Sometimes, this isn't data, this is noise. Allegedly, the two men loaded the unconscious woman into the car, and then they joined Louis and Glenoris. 
Instead of going to West Point, however, they drove her to a house in Weehawken, New Jersey. This is actually the town on the other side of the Lincoln Tunnel from Manhattan, but of course they didn't take the Lincoln Tunnel because it didn't exist till 1937. Some New York trivia. On the drive there, little Louie allegedly told Glenaris that the woman was Dorothy Arnold, the socialite, and Glenaris said that he recognized her. He was able to give a description of a signet ring that the woman was wearing, and the description did actually match a ring that Dorothy Arnold wore. Louis contacted Glenaris the next day to come back to the house and, quote, finish the job. When he returned to the Weehawken house, he was greeted by Doc, who said the woman had died from a, quote, home operation, and that he would need to bury her remains. Glenaris and Louis took the woman's body back to New Rochelle, wrapped her in a sheet, and buried her in the cellar of the house. The whole story I just gave you is the story that was given to the prison warden who passed it on to the authorities. When the police showed up, however, Glenaris suddenly acted confused and claimed to have no idea what they were talking about. The police excavated several cellars in the New Rochelle area and they never found any remains. I don't know how many cellars they dug up. I've, I can't really All assess how. If you live in New Rochelle, New York, and you've got a dirt cellar, you may want to go digging. Mm. But um, Make a weekend project out of it. It'll be fun. Add an extension. T- to the cellar? That's that's yeah. a layer. Any deeper than that is, an, is either a Dexter's Lab-style laboratory, or just, it's a layer. You'll be ready when the nuclear bombs come, I guess. Dorothy's Ar- Dorothy Arnold's father was also not a fan of this story, and told the media, quote, So far, it appears on the face of the man's story, he is talking utter nonsense. We don't really know. He did give details that seemed to match a possible Dorothy Arnold story. But then again, this was a very famous case, and people throughout history have been known to just make shit up to capitalize on fame. So really, I mean, unless you want to start checking Chipotle's across America, we really don't have any leads as to where she might have gone. And at this point, the case is so incredibly cold that we're going to need some sort of miraculous... I don't even know, deathbed confession. Someone's going to need to find an old diary in an attic. Something exceptional is going to have to happen if we're ever going to have any closure in this case. So it seems unlikely. There is a young adult novel called Lost by Jacqueline Davies that suggests Dorothy Arnold, and I mean, spoiler alert for a book you're not going to read, the author suggests Dorothy Arnold disguised herself as a young, poor seamstress and went on to die in the horrific Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire of 1911. Um, this is so incredibly, it's so unlikely that it's difficult to put into words. This is a fictional what-if story that just ties together numerous important historical events from turn-of-the-century New York City. This is not a serious suggestion of what happened to her. This is just somebody proving how much they know about 1910s New York. But yeah, so, uh, it's up to you to decide what the most plausible explanation for Dorothy Arnold's disappearance is. If you want to let us know on social media... You can do that. It's a free country. We will read it. We will respond accordingly. We will award you however many Texases we think your theory is worth. So, my personal theory. My personal theory. Bet she exploded. I award you no Texas for that. She just spontaneously combusted in Midtown Manhattan at Absolutely. two p.m. Excuse on a crowded she street and spontaneously detonated. And nobody thought to mention that. They're like, you know, I now mean, that I think about it, I did see a woman fucking explode. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, 20th century New York, that was pretty pretty common. You know, you're just walking down the street, you, you, know, you see a woman, you wave at her, and then she just bursts. 
<laughs> I think there might be still some some bits of her dried to the bookstore window you might be able to scrape off. <laughs> they never found her body because the window cleaners were too efficient. Like that, that's it's horrifying. They'd already wiped it off, you know. So whatever theory you have about Dorothy Arnold will be better than that. <laughs> they will at least be like 0.01 Texas. At least 1% of a Texas. We will award you at least 1% Texas no matter how bad your theory is. Yes, well, uh, I think Jessica needs to go to bed before she hurts herself. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and are now deeply afraid of going missing and nobody caring as much about where your body is as whether or not you might have been found near a penis. Yeah. Uh, I've been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And we are fat, fat French, French, and fabulous. fabulous. And we're not missing. <laughs> yes. Not yet. Not yet. By the way, 100% of experts named Jessica Pijo say crush your nuts. It'll make you an artist. We are... We do not have time for a lawsuit. <laughs> I'm busy finding a new boyfriend after my old one gets shot. <laughs>